Times Politics on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, I'm Trevor Dan, back with another look at what's going on in Cambridge's politics. The dramas, the demos and the debates, including an exclusive interview this week with South Cam's Tory MP, Anthony Brown. What does Anthony think of the proposed congestion charge? Would he like to have a seat in the Cabinet? And what does he think of Boris Johnson? You might be surprised. Also on the show, Lewis Herbert, former leader of Cambridge City Council on his forthcoming radio show. News of some name-calling in the council chamber. And of course, top analysis as usual from our commentator and statistician, Phil Rogers. How are you, Phil? I'm very good, thanks, Trevor. Good. Uh, You've been uh, watching the live stream of Cambridge City Council. There's been a bit of a stromash, as I think it's called. Yes, there really was a sort of classic pre-election bad-tempered spat in the council chamber on Thursday. Um, this was actually the, the the second part of the council meeting that was, was held over from the week before. Um, so last week we had deciding what the council tax was going to be and setting the budget for the next year. And this week we had all the rest of the uh, council meeting, including some motions on uh, various controversial topics. What's um, the story behind this formal complaint that's been raised by Councillor Mairead Healy? Well, this relates to a um, motion that the Lib Dems brought forward about the Merkitt's garage site on, on Histon Road. Now, uh, Merkitt's are moving out and the Cambridge Investment Partnership wants to take over the site and build a lot of housing, as they have been doing around the city. And the Lib Dems have raised this issue, which has come up a number of times before, about houses in Cambridge being marketed to investors overseas in Hong Kong and elsewhere. And they're obviously very much against this. And Labour are really getting pretty fed up with this continually coming back. And uh, their point of view is essentially that, okay, while there was some marketing to overseas property investors, they stopped it to the extent that they could when they found out about it. And none of them have actually bought any of these properties in Cambridge and and so forth. So they think the Lib Dems are just trying to get a bit of uh, political capital from this and and uh, have something to put in their election leaflets. And what's the story about the bad language or the, the threatening comments that are alleged to have been made? Well, there was a pretty bad-tempered debate on it. And actually, if you watch the recording of it, there's a number of comments being made off mic, which you can't actually hear on the video because it only picks up whoever's actually speaking into the microphone. But there were allegations flying around that some councillors were making fun of the experience of racism reported by other councillors and so forth. And this complaint has gone in and, and there'll be some process to uh, to resolve all that. So we'll we'll have to see how this turns out. But it's it's not a very pretty sight for uh, people watching our elected representatives debating in the council chamber. Fascinating also to see uh, Labour and the Lib Dems disagreeing so violently in Cambridge City Council when they're allies elsewhere. Yes, that's right. And earlier uh, in in the evening, actually, the thing I thought would be most controversial was a motion brought forward by the Greens about the proposed congestion charge and wanting the Greater Cambridge Partnership to uh, take particular account of the cost of living effects of this on, on people in Cambridge. And there, Labour and the Lib Dems came together to amend that motion to basically say they want the consultation to proceed and the, the process to continue and, and and so forth. So there you hardly had a piece of paper to put between Labour and the Lib Dems. And then later on the order paper, they were sort of really at each other's throats. 
Still to come on Cam's Politics, a long conversation with Anthony Brown, MP for South Cam's. And we'll also have uh, Lewis Herbert talking about the show that he's making for Cambridge 105 Radio. But let's have a piece of music and then we'll talk about, uh, well, the congestion charge. What else? That's those talking heads and once in a lifetime. It's Cam's Politics for March 2023. And uh, since we last met, Phil, we've had one local election, I think, in St Neots. What does that tell us about the state of public opinion? Yes, so this was won by the Lib Dems and it was a reasonably comfortable win ahead of the Conservatives. Now, it had previously been held by an independent councillor and the Lib Dems didn't actually contest the seat last time. So it wasn't terribly clear how it was going to go, but they'll certainly have been happy with the outcome, certainly a lot happier than they were with the long Stanton by-election towards the end of last year. And we've got one coming up, another by-election uh, in Cottenham. What's going to happen yes, there? Yes, this time this is on uh, South Cambridgeshire District Council. And uh, in this case, I think the congestion charge may play a bit more of a role because we're, we're closer to the city here. This is another seat where back at the last council elections, the Lib Dems did very well indeed and uh, won a very large share of the vote. So we're certainly expecting that to come down a bit. But whether it'll be enough for the Conservatives to take the seat, we'll have to wait and see. And, and Labour are contesting it as well, of course. Since we last met, of course, we've had uh, a couple of demonstrations against the congestion charge and the uh, sustainable travel zone. Um, did you go to any of them? I was actually out of town at the uh, the time of the last one, but uh, obviously I've, I've seen the coverage of it. And it does seem to have been even bigger than the earlier one. And I, I think it does reflect that, uh, you know, there's, there's still a lot of uh, strong feeling about this in the city. This demonstration was a bit more notable for attracting, shall we say, a number of fringe elements from, from outside the city. There were people who'd been demonstrating in Oxford against uh, the quite different proposals that they have there. And they just sort of come across to Cambridge and crossed out Oxford and written Cambridge on some of their banners. So, <laughs> but, but I don't think this should take away from the fact that there is a very great deal of strong feeling in the city about the proposals. Well, we'll find out more about uh, Anthony Brown's view and uh, also talk to Lewis Herbert later on in this show. It's Cam's Politics from Cambridge 105 Radio. And here's Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney on Cam's Politics from Cambridge 105 Radio. Now, Anthony Brown has been MP for South Cambridgeshire since Heidi Allen stood down in 2019. He's been a journalist for The Times, for the BBC and for The Observer. He's worked as a banker and he was an advisor to Boris Johnson during his time as Mayor of London. We've been trying to get Anthony on this show for months, and I'm glad to say that finally he is on the line to us now from his office in Westminster. Cam's Politics with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105 Radio. So we're delighted to welcome to Cambridge Politics Anthony Brown, MP for South Cam's. And Anthony, you're unlike a lot of MPs who are sort of parachuted into their constituencies by central office. You are genuinely a local chap, aren't you? I, I am absolutely. I was born in uh, Mill Road Maternity Hospital, which is now, I think, uh, an old people's home. And in fact, my parents owned a shop in Mill Road, Brown's Bookstore in Mill Road. Somebody was and, telling um, me about what a great bookshop it was. It was. Yeah, I used to work there on Saturdays when I was a school kid. I used to sell books there and uh, and then do stock taking once a year. And uh, no, it was, it was great fun. And my mother had it for, well, my parents set it up together and then my mother 
kept it on and it was uh she had it for about 25 years i think but it, it unfortunately you know amazon came along and everything yeah. else and like a lot of small independent bookshops uh it didn't survive but she my mother she was uh i think in her mid-70s by the time she closed it so she was pretty ready to retire anyway and then and then yeah i went to school here so i grew up in falmere and uh i went to falmere primary school and, and I, you went to the university here as well so yeah, you yeah. never wanted to escape did you <laughs> It's not very really common in the UK to go to the university in the town that you grew up in. But I went. I went to. Um, I studied maths at the university. And my two, I went to Hills Road Sixth Form College. Where I did my A levels, and the my maths teachers there said, uh, "You know, you got." To, I was talking about Oxford or Cambridge, and they said, uh, "You you got to go to Cambridge. It's a lot better for maths." And I thought, "Work well, out, carry on staying in Cambridge." <laughs> and my brother went to Oxford, so uh, you know, I think we'll go there. That's right. <laughs> well, look, you've mentioned Mill Road, and I know that's not in your constituency. That's in Daniel Zeichner's, but it's topical this week because it looks as though they are going to finally close the bridge. Yeah. Do you do you have any view about that, given that you are local? I I don't know. I haven't. Paid that much attention to it because, as you say, it's not in my constituency, and I haven't got involved in the battles over it. And I don't know what all the traffic modelling is that they've done uh, and the arguments for it. But as somebody who has spent, a, you know, been going up and down Mill Road literally from the day I was born, you know, Mill Road is one long road full of traders, and you know, I know it's a lifeline for a large part of the local economy. And I know the traders there, the Mill Road Traders Association. I don't know if you had them on your show but they're mm. obviously very vociferously opposed to it saying that it will the closing saying it'll really damage business and i do know these road closures they do and uh, and also parking restrictions they do have a big impact on local businesses i remember my parents uh bookshop that uh they introduced uh the parking controls in the streets off the back of mill road well over 30 years ago and uh they noticed a dramatic decline in uh in people popping by as a result because you could only really walk there but so, so i i understand it and i think my if i i don't want to make a judgment without having studied in detail but if i my sympathy is certainly with the traders well one battle you have got involved in very much anthony is the whole business of the congestion charge and you're very again it let me put it to you that we've got to do something about the traffic in cambridge and surrounding areas what's wrong with this particular scheme from your perspective well there's there's a couple of things i mean one is just the scale and scope of it and i, I think they will change it but it is we did a, an analysis of congestion charges in in 17 different cities in britain that have either got one or are planning one and they all go by slightly different names with really charges the tax on driving basically and the one in cambridge is by far the most draconian in, in every way you look at it so for example it covers electric vehicles so it's not just about climate change or air pollution because obviously electric vehicles don't really contribute to air pollution uh, whereas in other places like london electric vehicles are exempt it covers local residents so even if, if you live within the zone and you just want to drive to the end of the street to go to the shop pick up something then you're you're hit by it in terms of the number of hours a day it's 12 hours a day even in london it's only 11 hours a day so it's actually more you know it's a wider ranging than in london and uh, and just geographically it covers the entire city but also uh, even like grantchester for example and that, and that and a lot of the suburbs of Cambridge, as you know, they don't they don't really have that much congestion there. I mean, it's, you know, in other places like Oxford, for example, which does have one, it is just the central streets where it's applied. And Durham is the same, and so on. When I was a child, we lived up in um, near Arbury and uh, off Gilbert Road, and there's very virtually never any congestion up there. And yet, the people there will still be affected by it. So the the impact is very regressive in the sense that if you're in a if you if you're well paid and you've got a nice expensive car, then you're not going to worry about five pounds. But actually. When they uh, introduced it at the uh, in London, 
I was working at the Times at the time, and the first day that we came in, I happened to be going out in the chauffeur-driven Jaguar of the editor of the Times uh, to go out to a lunch. And uh, and he joked, and it was a joke before you misquote this, but he said, oh, it's so, uh, so good of Ken Livingston to price all the, you know, the poor people off the roads. So I spoke to a care worker who, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people on the doors about this, I mean, mainly in the villages sort of around Cambridge, but a lot of them work in Cambridge. But I spoke to somebody who was a care worker, and she goes and visits various houses around in different parts of Cambridge, and uh, she doesn't earn a lot of money. And this would be... £1,200 a year out of post-tax income. I mean, it's a really large, £5 a day may not sound that much, but over a year, it's a huge amount. Uh, and she couldn't go to all these different houses and different places by bus because it would take forever. She just wouldn't be able to. So you uh, think that, as you just said a little while ago, you think that they will pull back from this proposal? I suspect what they'll do is they'll come back with new proposals. I think it's next summer. Like the most contentious angle overall is, is Addenbrooke's Hospital that actually covers the patients and the NHS workers there and indeed i've had a lot of nhs workers who've been in, in touch with me and i've spoken to them i did little videos with some of them actually who are re- they don't have regular hours they can't control when they go in or out so one of them was a shift worker who would who would start at maybe midnight and then finish at eight in the morning which is within the congestion charge time uh, so when they left work they'd have to pay it and uh, you can't get buses in from north Stowe at sort of midnight to go to work at Brooks and then try and get buses back at eight in the morning so I think they'll probably exempt the they might exempt the hospital for example um, okay I- can I move you on to the countryside because a lot of South Cam's is farming territory what's been the value of Brexit to the local farming community so interestingly, the, the farming community across the country, I don't know if it's true in South Camps, but it's uh, it was actually quite pro-Brexit. And that's because they didn't like the common agricultural policy. And, and in fact, one of the, uh, the, the one of the things that frustrated me most about EU membership was um, the common agricultural policy. I used to be Europe editor of the Observer newspaper and then the Times. So I spent a lot of time reporting on the common agricultural policy. It was a bit bonkers, but there's nothing the British government could do to change it because it was all by unanimity. Every every European country had to agree it. And that was impossible to get. So the, 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 um, the common, common agricultural policy has been uh, scrapped, but the subsidies haven't. The farmers still are still meant to get the same level of subsidies that guaranteed for a number of years, but it's now being paid for supposedly the system they're replacing it with is called ELMS, which is Environment Land Management Services. Actually, the farmers should be paid not just for owning land, because previously they got paid just for being a rich landowner. They would they'd get money just because they owned a thousand acres. Whereas now they're meant to be being paid for doing environmental improvements like planting trees or looking after hedgerows or preserving water or you know improving biodiversity in different ways. And that's certainly, if you're going to get public money, uh, it should really be for some public good like that. And I think that would be that when it when it settles down and is sorted out, if you, I don't know if you speak to farmers on your show, but I, I speak to farmers a lot and it's, you know, I, I'm not going to particularly defend uh, how it's been implemented so far, but it's uh, something, a big change like this is always going to be sort of uh, wrinkles on the way, as it were, but I'm sure it will get um, fully sorted out. And then it would definitely be a better system than what we had under the common agricultural policy. OK, well, talking of defending things, Anthony, you know this is coming. Um, I don't know you've, what's coming. <laughs> you've lived through, in your short time as an MP, uh, you've lived through three prime ministers and four chancellors within the last year. I would imagine it's a bit hard being a Tory. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of people slapping you on the back and saying, hey, it's all going terribly well, Anthony, isn't it? No, look, last year it was a mess. There's no, I'm not absolutely not going to defend what happens. I, I don't think you'll find any Conservative MP who will defend what happens. It was, uh, you know, we had two, as you said, three Prime Ministers, two leadership elections, four chancellors. 
you know, I, I believe the government, should, you know, one of the primary things people look for in a government is competence. You know, they want somebody who can just get the job done, basically, and, and irrespective of any other sort of you know, political values and whatever. And we didn't show that. And then on top of that were all things like the party gate. I mean, I wrote two letters of no confidence uh, in Boris as Prime Minister, and that's despite the fact I had worked with him previously very closely. And I know him, know him very well, and on a social level, as a personal level, I, you know, it's a, a, a good person. But he, you can't have a Prime Minister repeatedly breaking rules. And I just wanted a, a competent government. And that's why I, uh, both the first time round and the second time round, I was one of the very early public supporters of Rishi Sunak because he's, I didn't know him before politics. I've only known him since I was an MP. But he's, uh, he's clearly just a very bright and competent guy and get, very hardworking, gets on with the, with the details. And you can see that with the, the Northern Ireland Agreement, which is, I mean, this is classic Rishi, which is actually just, you don't get deals like that without being really hardworking and dedicated and building the relationships and rebuilding trust and so on. And it's got what I think is a very good result and, you know, hopefully it will get implemented. But no, last year, last year was a mess. But at least we've got we've now got a good leader, we've got a competent leader, and you know, I'm sure things will get a lot better on a number of fronts. You're a, a competent man. You've been a, a, a journalist. You've, wor- you've worked as an advisor. You've run, you know, the, 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 the banking industry, in effect. Um why aren't you in government? Is it because they don't ask you or because you don't really want to be in that kind of role? Uh, well, the, the, you answered your own question. It's just, uh, they didn't ask. They haven't asked me. I, I, but why not? I mean, they're, well, there's let's not put many it this way. Intake. There's, there's not, the, 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 the problem I have is, not a problem, but I mean, the, the reality is this. After 13 years in power, there's an awful lot of people with a lot of experience. And as a new MP, uh, you always have to spend a couple of years or a few years on the back benches. And when you're fresh in government, like in 2010, for example, or Labour in 1997, and very few people had experience of government. So, whereas there's. But Anthony, you must look around the photographs of that cabinet table and go, they're not all as clever as me. (laughs) Well, they're they're experienced and good people. And there are a lot, there are a lot. no, obviously not all politicians are good people, but all these competent people. And I, uh, you know, I'd be the first to admit that. But actually, there are a lot of uh, competent people. But no, I'll, I'll do whatever the prime minister. I won't do whatever the prime minister asks me to do. But you know, if he asks me to serve, I'll uh, serve the country. I'll serve the country. All right. Uh, you mentioned that you. Do, <laughs> you mentioned that you used to work with Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London. And I got the impression that you wouldn't mind going out for a drink with him. But do you trust him? I mean, we've got a, another. I would say scandal at the moment going on with all these WhatsApp messages that are being revealed. You know, is he, is he a competent Hancock's. leader? There's they're Matt Hancock's. Uh, yes, but there's some there's some more come out today, aren't there? That have got the, the stuff about Boris's mathematics and the with the pandemic. Have you seen okay, those today? I, I haven't. I haven't I've been okay, well, you you're a me. you're a maths graduate, so you'll I, enjoy I, I, reading. No, well, I, spent, I just spent a lot of time during the pandemic looking at the maths of it all. And, uh, and in fact, I had many conversations with Matt Hancock. And indeed, I wrote articles about the maths of the, uh, the pandemic and the sort of testing regimes and so on. Uh, and because I just I thought some of the maths didn't really stack up at the time. So I, I was definitely doing a, a challenge function, both privately and, and publicly. Um, I think what was your, your question was whether I trust My question Boris. is really about Boris and whether whether you would trust him, really. I, I, yes, no, I do. I mean, I, I I don't defend his actions as you know things like Partygate and so on. I've written you know publicly uh, about that and letters about that, and and, uh, and that's why I wrote a letter of uh, no confidence. But it, but in terms of one thing, people normally don't believe me when I say, but I, I don't think Boris is really a liar in the in the traditional sense of a liar, liar in in that. As I know, he doesn't. So you know, I think Putin. I'm scoffing. Uh... <laughs> that that uh, 
and you know liars where you say something that you know is untrue deliberately to deceive the other person uh, oh, so he doesn't uh, know whether he's lying or not that's well, worse isn't it well no, it's, it's it's not that it's that he's you know he has a he's a he's a journalist with a very powerful sense of narrative about different things and i don't you know I, I i when he said there were no parties in number 10 i don't i don't i don't think it was the case for him that he thought there were parties and he was trying to tell parliament there weren't parties i think he persuaded himself that they what they were didn't classify as parties so they it, it doesn't make it justifiable and i you know i, I said, was going to say this I've is said, not a good defense at law no, well, it's not. It? i don't defend i don't defend it at all i think it's completely indefensible i was completely shocked by the um when i read the sue gray report well, there's an interesting development uh, and um, no, it absolutely shouldn't have happened. And it's you know absolutely totally incumbent on the prime minister that you have to lead by example. And the person who's ultimately responsible for making all the rules in the country, which during the pandemic were pretty draconian, you know, effectively locking people up in their homes, uh, has to uh, abide by those rules. And the you know the restri lockdown restrictions uh, cause huge hardships to huge numbers of people. And I, and I was that myself personally. I was I, I went you know uh, absolutely scrupulous in always obeying all the rules at the particular time and I avoided lots of situations and lots of things that where I thought they broke the rules and I just couldn't get involved and that includes actually my mother died during the pandemic and she died at Adenbrook's hospital and uh you know that was very you know difficult doing all that with the she was ill throughout the pandemic and then died uh, last year and it's it was uh, really difficult dealing with all that with all the pandemic restrictions can we talk about the environment um in the broadest sense you mentioned that you were an environment correspondent for a while we're constantly hearing at the moment about sewage in our rivers and uh, in our chalk streams. It should be, I would have thought, something that would exercise you with a rural, oh, it does. largely it does. rural constituency. What are you doing about it? Anthony? Well, uh, well, I'm doing the radio interview, basically, because uh, so, I've, I've just called. I've called for. I've done this before, but I've again called for the water company bosses to lose bonuses if they don't meet their targets of reducing uh, sewage. So I've, I have got very uh, heavily involved with this. So obviously look, sewage discharges of any sort are unacceptable. We've got a Victorian sewage system in this country where they've got the, the runoff water from rain in the same pipes as the sewage from houses, the foul water. And that sort of didn't really matter that much when there weren't many houses about. But uh, over the last 100 years, there's, the sewage has increased dramatically, the amount of sewage, but also the runoff from roads as we build up more. And you notice this in places like North Stowe, where there's a lot of house building. Uh, there's a lot more runoff that goes into it. And, and the, basically, the system, it's been going on for decades, this. It's not a sort of new thing, it's, but it's just been getting steadily worse. And we, uh, in the Environment Act, had the first uh, legislation requiring water companies to reduce the amount of sewage overflow. And it, it isn't raw sewage, by the way. It's, it's it's just missed the last stages of treatment. It's still disgusting, still unacceptable, but it's not as though there are poos and toilet paper put into the streams. It's uh, it's just not done the very final bit of filtration. It's still totally unacceptable and still bad for wildlife. Uh, so we passed, in fact, the amendment doing it. it was I actually suggested it, and I had a meeting with George Eustace, his environment secretary at the time, the government lawyers, and uh, they accepted it and we passed it, and I announced it uh, actually in an interview on the PM programme. Uh, and that's that requires for the first time, there's a sort of framework now forcing the water companies to reduce the sewage flows. I would like to go faster, there's no doubt about that. On the main criticism from environment groups, I mean, they, they, like, they very much welcome the fact that we're doing this. Uh, they want us to go faster, and I would like to as well. But there's you know, there's pushback, obviously, from the industry about how, how quickly you can go, because this involves huge amounts of investment, because you've got to rebuild sewage systems. And there's other things you can do in the meantime. You can build more storm tanks and so on, but ultimately you, you need to rebuild the entire country's sewage system, which is obviously it's a massive undertaking. It costs literally hundreds of, uh, hundreds of billions of pounds. 
Now, let me pull you on to the issue at the front of everybody's mind, I think, at the moment, which is the cost of living. Mm. I don't think I would be alone in thinking that you in the Conservative Party deserve quite a lot of blame for this. You've been in power for a very long time. You can't claim that it's anyone else's fault that we've got all this inflation. Can you legitimately claim that you can put it right? Inflation is obviously painfully high. I'm at 10% but coming down. And it's um, but that's the result of the energy price hike, which was a result of the war, the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine. I was actually in Ukraine last week and uh, uh, as a part of the parliamentary delegation on the anniversary of the invasion. And we went through Poland because you can't fly direct to Ukraine. And I was speaking to some Polish people who are complaining about inflation there being 16%, which is way, way above ours. And, it, and it's actually... It's across Europe. I mean, the inflation rate in Germany, France, is about the same level as the UK. In America, it's about the same level as the UK. It's a, it is a genuinely worldwide phenomenon. And it's certainly absolutely not caused by the Conservative government. And the government has done a lot of things to try and help people with cost of living. You can certainly argue they should do more, but the, you know, there'll be things you know about, like the energy price cap. Uh, that certainly helps a lot of people, as well as a, the rebate people getting. Okay, well, are you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but are you lobbying uh, Jeremy Hunt to say you must do more? Well, throughout the whole process, I have, well, Rishi was the Chancellor of the, uh, the well, that was during the pandemic, that, uh, at the start there, but he, he initially, and then uh, at the beginning of last year, he was the Chancellor who started introducing all these costs, the cost of living help, and I had many meetings with him arguing that you had to do something about it, and, and he was very sort of willing to, and we've got, we've got a very, I think, by comparison to other countries, quite a generous package, but we are more, impact, households in the UK are more impacted by energy gas prices than elsewhere because there are more houses that depend on gas and it's a bigger part of their bill so so we are more vulnerable to these gas price hikes and uh, you could argue, i mean you know you can argue, it is a legitimate argument to be saying the government should do more but actually it's not the government's money it's people's money borrowing is at record levels already we're paying huge amounts in uh, interest rates i think the point that i've made repeatedly is that the help that we do give should be as targeted as possible there's no point in giving help to millionaires or you know indeed even mp's on mp salary you know it should be on people who are genuinely having trouble paying the bills and that's the terrible thing about inflation which uh you know if you're if, if you're saving money if you're earning so much money you save every month then it's you, you're going to be able to pay afford to pay your energy bills but if you're somebody who struggles to make ends meet every month and, and the energy bills suddenly go up and food prices suddenly go up then you've got a real problem and that's that they're the people that the government should focus its help on rather than rather than uh, you know the entire population i see on the treasury select committee i spend a lot of time grilling with Governor of the Bank of England and other economists about the state of the economy. So we, we, everyone thought we we're going to be in a really steep recession now, but it looks like we're not. It looks, I mean, it's not growing particularly, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not contracting either. And, uh, and thankfully, the, you know, the biggest problem is, uh, jobs and norm in a recession, people losing their jobs is the real hardship. And that, and, uh, you know, fortunately at the moment, fingers crossed, that doesn't seem to be the case. So it's, uh, 2023 at the moment there's going to be an election possibly in a year 18 months time this constituency uh, that you represent used to be one of the very safest tory seats in england and now it's quite legitimately described as a marginal um do you think you will win next time and more to the point have you got a plan b in case you don't <laughs> no i have, i have said publicly that i'm standing again yeah. uh uh, so I'm not one of the MPs that's not standing. Um, yeah, I totally think it's winnable. I mean, th there was a real challenge. You're right that it's uh, traditionally been a safe Conservative seat. In fact, I think I'm right in saying that it's, only, it's 
South Cambridgeshire as a constituency has only ever elected Conservatives. Um, the and then Heidi Allen, my predecessor, obviously changed parties, so we've had times when several times. Yeah, she, quite a few times. She's a little political journey. So the last election, 2019, was very difficult in South Cambridgeshire for the Conservatives because for two reasons. One is Brexit, because it's a very pro-Remain constituency, 62% Remain, and this was the election to get Brexit done. I mean, that's you know tough. And uh, and then the second thing was Jeremy Corbyn being completely uh, hopeless as a leader. So a lot of, because uh, Labour have traditionally been quite strong in South Cambridgeshire as well. So they came second in 2015 and 2010. And uh, the, the they only came to third place in the 2017 election. And uh, but actually, what I found knocking on doorsteps is a lot of people saying I'm a lifelong Labour voter, but I just can't bring myself to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. And they ended up voting for the Lib Dems. So and both the, that effect, the Brexit effect and the Corbyn effect won't be happening in uh, will be very surprised they are uh, happening at the time of the general election. So, yes, I do think it's winnable. And, you know, I've been doing working very hard as a uh, hopefully a diligent constituency MP and hopefully people notice that. So there's there's lots of grumpiness about uh, the Lib Dems and South Cam. So that's that when it comes to election time, obviously, you know, presumably that will uh, help the Conservatives. How well do you get on with Daniel Zeichner? Your I I, I I get on well. We do a lot together. We've got a lot of similar interests. We do a lot on environment together and life sciences. So obviously, we've, got, we've both got a lot of life sciences in our constituency. So we do a lot. And we're not political rivals in the sense that you know the Conservatives are never going to win in Cambridge City and Labour are never going to win in the. South Cam, so or at least highly unlikely. So no, I get I no, he's a decent guy. Get on with him. All right. You'd well, actually be uh, surprised. I tell you, you'd be surprised because you see people in the chamber, which encourages a sort of almost theatrical pantomime gladiatorial contest. That you'd be surprised how much people get on behind the scenes. I mean, so in Ukraine, for example, I went on a cross-party delegation of MPs. There was SNP and Labour MPs there. They all get on absolutely fine. It's nice to get to know them better. And you know, we're all human beings. Every, everyone in I know. Politicians aren't the most popular people on the planet, but the, the, the most people, the overwhelming majority of people in politics are decent people trying to do their best. And well, Anthony, you're in danger of becoming quite convivial. <laughs> well, thank big, you. There are a lot of big egos and there are a lot of people <laughs> misbehave, but I mean, it's most Well, look, th- thank you very much for giving up so much time to uh, talk to us on Cambridge 105 Radio. It's great to have you on. And uh, perhaps we can get you on uh, another time soon. Yeah, very welcome to Be delighted. Cam's Politics on Cambridge 105 Radio. Well, Phil Rogers, I expected an interview with Anthony Brown to be a, a bit more contentious, actually. I thought he'd be more confrontational, but he didn't go for that style at all. He was he was quite candid, I think. Yes, he came across as, as very straightforward and, and really not particularly political for most of it, I thought. I, I was quite interested by uh, what he was saying, for example, about inflation, where he's clearly expecting it to come down. And, and Rishi Sunak has these sort of five targets of things he hopes to achieve. And one of those is to halve inflation. But as Anthony Brown was saying, mathematically, that's basically what's pretty much going to happen. You'd, you'd have to work pretty hard for it not to halve. So it's kind of um, interesting to see him being fairly straightforward about that, but though perhaps that's why he's not sitting around the cabinet table uh, as, as he might hope to be. <laughs> yes, well, that's true, isn't it? Perhaps he's just a bit too honest. Um, what did you make of his remarks about the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, with whom he used to work? 
Well, he goes back a long way with Boris, but I was particularly amused where he said he he didn't think Boris is a liar in the traditional sense. He, uh, <laughs> what does that if, mean? <laughs> well, he's he's got his own his own particular style, perhaps, and you know clearly uh, the Partygate thing is back in the news again, and uh, we've got the Privileges Committee coming down pretty hard on Boris Johnson, and we've yet to see the outcome of that. And do you think? Um, I mean, we were talking about South Camps now being a marginal. He's pretty confident that he's going to stay on and he's going to win comfortably. The Lib Dems don't think that, do they? They think they've got a real chance of ousting him. The Lib Dems have certainly got high hopes. But um, as he was saying, I think tactical voting is absolutely going to be a key question. Last time, there were a number of Labour voters who didn't like Jeremy Corbyn very much and, and thus switched to the Lib Dems, which was certainly a factor in that constituency. And we may see that unwind a bit. We'll certainly see some Brexit effects unwind a bit, but that can work both ways as well. Another key factor is that we're also due some fairly substantial boundary changes. So the South Cam's constituency is actually kind of moving round more to the south of the city. So there'll there'll be some new voters coming in who haven't uh, had to choose between Anthony Brown and his rivals before. Would it be too cynical of me to suggest that his very profound opposition to the congestion charge signals the fact that this might be a single issue election when we do finally get a general election that the, the Tories will go very hard on we're the people who will make sure that you don't have a congestion charge whereas the others will have to say no we, we're still supporting some version of that they'd be mad not to frankly I mean I think politically the the congestion charge proposals are a, a real gift for the Conservatives it'll certainly be interesting at the East Cambridgeshire District Council elections coming up this year to see how much of an effect they have there. And I do think it's going to be a really major feature of the campaign in the general election as well. Thank you very much, Phil. Uh, stay where you are. We've got some more music and then we'll talk to Lewis Herbert. The Patch Up Boys, of course, and the song that became 1-0 to the Arsenal. We're singing 3-2 to the Arsenal after last weekend. It's Cam's Politics on Cambridge 105 Radio. And uh, this time next week, be it Sunday or the Tuesday repeat slot, or indeed any time on the website, there'll be a special programme presented by Lewis Herbert, the former leader of Cambridge City Council. And Lewis joins us now. Lewis, what are you going to be talking about next week? Trevor, the planning system, I think whilst an hour will by no means be enough, it really is critical in a city like Cambridge with the need for sustainable growth, but the challenges of a lot of people and a postage stamp sized uh, area. So a bit to try and demystify it because I think people feel a bit sidelined and left out by planning. We always talk on this show about the complex format under which everything has to be done in local government in in this area are you going to try and make some of that a, a little bit more understandable yeah i think both the the local plans which can take five or seven years i mean the last one took it was about eight years work by the time it was adopted i mean if any passenger was still on the train in terms of members of the public they were extremely resilient um but also just applications that sometimes People suddenly get one out of the blue near them or they feel strongly about something. But also we're going to look at issues like transport or do we have enough affordable housing or not transport in a big way, but but shouldn't transport be sorted out before planning applications? 
and also I think renewable energy because that still is really complicated. We've been picking up some questions on Twitter and, and if there are any listeners who've got a question they want us to address, we'll be recording on Monday to go out next Sunday. And um, when you say we, this is you with Councillor Sam Davis, the independent councillor on the, on the City Council. So there's a, there's a bit of a kind of cross-bench vibe going on. There is. And also Peter Studdart, who people may know, was in charge of planning for both Cambridge and South Cambridgeshire, amongst other things. So people with a range of opinions, people with a lot of exchanges with the public. Um, and yes, Sam Davis has got some interesting thoughts, um, very valid thoughts on her blog and a bit of a discussion. And then a month later, or perhaps after the election, Herder, we'll do a fuller programme about the Greater Cambridge Local Plan. So, yeah, uh, thank you. Don't think that um, we're going to let you go that easily. Um, oh, it's so unkind. You've done a lot of work recently with the combined authority, largely when uh, Nick Johnson was was not in post. I know that Anna Smith and Lucy Netzinger are the deputy mayors and, and covering. You did a little bit of covering. What was your experience of working in that organisation, which I think a lot of us still don't fully understand? Well, I've been on record to say that the last mayor... Uh, really mauled it up, got it all in in the wrong way. Lost over £40 million of affordable housing money because he'd done a funny set of loans to his old council and a company called Larrick Homes. This is Mayor Palmer. Yeah. So Mayor Palmer messed up big time. My comparison, he was like a teenager who crashed the family car into a tree and ran away. But fundamentally, the whole of Cambridge and Peterborough has to work together and government is making it the entry point for all sorts of financial support and favours. So we got the council housing funding out of it. Other councils get a, quite a bit. And if we want to do strategic investment and get a share of business rates, government is saying you've got to do it. Is your sense that the Labour Party, were they to get in nationally next time, would keep this structure? I wish I knew. <laughs> um, I, but I think they will. Because if you look at what Andy Burnham and in London is achieved by Sadiq Khan and the Tories in, they've got the mayor, former Waitrose, John Lewis Geezer. Andy in, Street. Yeah, in, in Birmingham. They do work. The, the, the risk is you're putting everything on one person. So that is one of the biggest risks. But I think, yes, they're, they're proposing one, as you might know, Trevor, for both Norfolk and Suffolk. We tried to work with them, but I decided it was too difficult to be on that scale. But I, I do think it's a way to go. But, but I'm really not in favour of separate organisational structures. And I do believe that there's ways of getting the local authority leaders to act like adults, which they normally do. And I'm just a bit worried because every time we get money from government, it involves a new set of bureaucracy. And as people have mapped, like Anthony Carpen and others it's hideously complicated and it excludes the public more while i've got you just one last thing you are obviously a signatory of the uh, cambridge labour party statement about the sustainable travel zone is your sense the same as anthony brown's that it will change that these proposals will not go through as as we see them now well, we've got to listen to people the biggest issue is peak time and it's really a lot worse we're also the fourth, fifth worst city in Britain on air pollution. You've got to be going something about messing it up 
to be like that. And the bus services, uh, as I use, try to use it uh, regularly, is appalling. So something's got to give. Something's got to change. But, yeah, I expect that we'll be listening to the consultation. And every candidate who's out on the door will be introducing it as well as having it raised over the next two months. So I, I personally think that congestion is appalling at peak times. And we've got to look at that. Lewis Herbert, thank you so much for joining us on Cam's Politics. Good luck in this slot next week. Um, All right, well, I'll be listening out now. And um, no, you, you you both do a sterling job. And I just think we we need to have what Cambridge 105 does, which is an independent voice and the opportunity for people who know a lot to come and talk without any side. So enjoy your programme Sunday. Thank you, Lewis. Uh, that's the trail uh, sorted. Uh, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. So, Phil, that's pretty much... What you were saying, that this congestion charge proposal is going to change and probably go through a number of different configurations before it comes in. Yes, I think that's right. Um, it's possible it might get abandoned completely, but I really don't see that happening at the moment. It's also possible it may go ahead currently as proposed, but I think very likely is that uh, the GCP will come back with some sort of modified proposal in some way. And the question really is how much it's going to be modified and uh, what the political reality is that sort of determines whether they can get it through or not. So uh, next week we'll be in um, what's always referred to as PERDA, which means it's the period where we have to give the, the, all the parties the same amount of time. I know I've asked you this before, but what do you expect to happen at that election in May? Well, looking forward in, in Cambridge, we've got one third of the seats up and really whatever happens, Labour are going to retain control. There are some seats where the Lib Dems will have hopes of coming back a bit. They were really sort of on the back foot last time. They might come forward a little bit. But uh, on the other hand, there are seats where Labour have hopes as well, particularly in, in Castle Ward that they took late last time. They may be able to make another game there. Also, the Greens, I'm expecting to hold on in Abbey, and I think they may have chances in Newnham as well, or at least of building their vote, if not of taking the seat. Looking at the um, analysis that you do about who is standing and who's standing down in the election, do you think we're going to lose any famous local politicians or uh, gain any new rising stars? Well, one interesting move is that Alice Gilderdale, who is a Labour councillor in Market Ward, is actually switching to East Chesterton. So I, I suspect they think they're, Labour think they're a little bit safer there. I'm not sure I really see any sort of very dramatic changes. Uh, possibly one, as I mentioned, in Castle Ward, that's where uh, Cheney Payne for the Lib Dems is defending her seat. Uh, she's actually going to be the next Lib Dem candidate for Cambridge MP, but uh, she's she's got a bit of a battle to hold on to her council seat. Interesting stuff, as ever. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Phil. We'll see you next month. Well, thanks very much. Hello. A little Cambridge music to end Cam's politics for March. Don't forget that next week, next Sunday or Tuesday, or indeed any time on the website, you can hear Lewis Herbert and Sam Davies talking about planning in Cambridgeshire, which is a very important issue. And of course, we'll be back at the beginning of April for another edition of Cam's Politics. This has been a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio. I've been Trevor Dan. Thanks to Phil Rogers and to you for listening. Ta-da! Ta-da!